0: Hello and welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi Smartabe. This podcast is an educational program by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA, AFPC USA. This podcast is available on Google, Apple Podcast and Spotify and everywhere you get your podcast. Like many things in our world today, journalism is also going through a series of changes. That includes the role of foreign correspondents in a rapidly changing era. International reporters covering stories abroad face unique challenges in this century that were less common or non-existent in previous generations. Among them are the dangers of reporting in a world increasingly threatening them and press freedom, of course, with fiscal dangers, legal challenges, harm, and jail time like Evan Geshkovich, whose wrongful detention in Russia we discussed a few weeks ago on this podcast. Then there's a host of other challenges to the truth and accurate reporting. There's the digitization of storytelling and the decline of print publications, as well as funding for old school platforms. An explosion of misinformation and disinformation, especially on social media, including politicians attacking the truth and calling the media the enemy of the people and the increasing influence of artificial intelligence. Joining us to discuss the issues is Stora H. Rowley, who goes by Bob. He's the vice president and a board member of the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA or AFPC USA, and an adjunct lecturer at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, where he also teaches a master's program at the School of Communications. Bob is also a contributory writer to the Washington Monthly and occasionally writes commentary for the Chicago Tribune. He has also hosted an episode of this podcast during World Press Freedom Day in May. Bob will talk to us about the threats foreign correspondents are facing and how they can deal with this landscape of challenges. Bob, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you, Nee. Great to be here. here. Great to have you this time as a as a as a guest. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you had the introduction. As I read, our world is changing, and so is our profession. And yes, the first thing I, I mentioned, for instance, about the digitization of stories, I remember very well. As a kid, what drew me to the profession was because there's this entertainment newspaper that I love to read so much that I dreamt of working for and when I went to journalism school was the first place I wanted to do my internship but of course uh, fate had its way and I went into radio first instead of print but yes there are not that many newspapers around anymore a lot of them have completely gone online or are mostly online and have very few print circulation Let me just take your general overview of all these challenges that I listed, first of all, and then we can zero in on, you know, what's causing the decline in print, for instance. Well,
1: it's a really good question. And um, I'm sorry you didn't get your first choice, but I'm glad you went into audio so that you could help us now. Um, The Association of Foreign Press Correspondents is a place near and dear to my heart because it focuses on the important work that foreign correspondents do. And I think it's probably the most important job in journalism that I can think of. I'm biased because I got to do it, and I was blessed to get to do it. But the challenges that we face now are even worse than the ones I faced back in my day. I spent uh, 33 years at the Chicago Tribune, and a third of them I spent abroad. I lived in uh, Mexico and covered all of Latin America. My daughters were born there. I lived in Toronto and covered Canada, but I would go on long assignments from Canada to cover the first Gulf War or the fall of the Soviet Union or the wars in Yugoslavia. I went ashore with the Marines in Somalia with my suitcase. It wasn't very heroic or daring for the invasion of Panama. Um, And then finally, I was based in Jerusalem in the Middle East for four years, uh, also with an apartment in Cairo. So I covered a lot of the world and I was blessed to do that. And since then, we've seen thousands of foreign correspondent jobs kind of disappear. In the 2000s and the 2010s, just like newspapers facing the rise of the internet and the web, the, a lot of these jobs just went away. Um, but I don't think it's a hopeless situation. There are still major newspapers around. Uh, the first thing I like to, to tell my students is that if you're looking for where the news is mostly generated, still, even though newspapers are probably, they've lost thousands of employees and hundreds if not thousands of newspapers have just gone away there are still many great ones the regional newspaper in a big area like chicago still has a lot of sway if you look at uh, where cable news and television and radio programs get their news in new york they wake up in the morning they go out and get the new york times and the Wall street journal among others and a lot of those print newspapers dictate what happens there in washington the politicians and the journalists wake up they read those papers and they read the Washington Post and others, publications like the Washington Monthly, which I'm blessed to work for right now as a contributing writer. And that still drives so much of what we see in the digital press on online news uh, organizations. And, and I tell my students there's hope because in the last 20 years, there are hundreds, again, maybe thousands of new news organizations that are dot .coms, that are online. My daughter worked in New York for seven years and she worked her way almost like Lilypad to Lilypad pad to, to organizations like mike.com or adexchanger.com that didn't exist 20 years ago so there are jobs we've seen a rise in journalism schools and students applying uh, especially in the master's program a lot of the undergrads are doing double majors they're going to double major mm-hmm. journalism and economics or journalism and poli sci wow. uh, but there's still lots of interest among young people And to get back to the point that it's never been a more important time, as far as I can tell, for foreign correspondent work, because of all the challenges that you mentioned at the beginning, the digitization of media, the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation, the the lies that come out of the political sector. Right now, teaching journalism, it used to be, I always thought, you have to tell both sides. You know, one side says this, one side says that, but what do you do when one side is a lie? You have an obligation as a journalist to tell the truth. And if one side is lying, you got to say that, fight openly and bluntly. And it comes with a cost because you may get accused of being biased or this and that. But just mm. in the current crisis in America's democracy, I don't see it as a fight between Republicans and Democrats, although it is. It's really a fight between people who believe in the Constitution and the democracy and are defending it and people who are anti-democratic and want to tear it down for their own purposes. And I think that's the obligation of journalism. Um, You have to report that. And when you're called fake news or the enemy of the people, I take that really personally. I've had friends who traveled the world to cover wars and other dangerous assignments and died doing it. I take it really personally and I find it really offensive that someone would dare call the press the enemy of the people, especially someone in America where freedom of the press you know is enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Um, yes. It's just not acceptable. So, with all these challenges, my main point is that we have to keep telling the truth. Information is light, and we have to get it out there uh, in all the ways we can, on all the platforms we can, in all channels, and all the ways that people want to get their news. And and one of those social media channels are now a great font of disinformation and misinformation. And the Absolutely. only and the only way to combat that is, is to keep telling the truth louder and longer because I do believe it eventually wins out.
0: Hmm. Because I was going to say social media has both advantages and disadvantages because I was recently listening to a news program where apparently one French newspaper, I can't remember correctly whether it was Le Monde or Le Parisien, that had its font and everything you know copied and a fake story made with their logo on it and shared across social media, indicating that that paper had done that report and when they really didn't do it. And of course, the media also relies on social media, now that a lot of them are behind paywalls, as we call it, online, to you know get readers to still engage with them. So if we are being branded as enemies of the people already, and we are having to deal with our corporate image being manipulated in this way, I mean, doesn't that make it even harder for the public to trust us than they are right now?
1: Absolutely, it does. that's called a deep fake, I think. And you will see more and more of those on the internet generated by AI. Um, These large language models and the image generating machines can do that more and more and make it look real. So again, when those things happen, the organization that's that's, uh, offended should be you know speaking out and writing very clearly about it other journalists and journalist organizations like ours and others should be out there speaking the truth and denouncing that on social media there's this whole ecosystem now uh, that we've really never seen before where there are echo chambers of like-minded media echoing the same viewpoints some of which are complete falsehoods and lies
0: much like sharing the talking points that politicians are using when they make their appearances on the on the media channels. That's exactly right. Um, and and I mean, we even see this in our lives and families,
1: don't we? Um, I have a, a very close relative who is a supporter of a more conservative candidate. I tend to be a supporter of a more, more progressive candidate in my politics. But literally, when I watch his news programs, and then I talk to him and argue with him, I absolutely hear the same talking points come back at me. I have a, another close relative who thinks differently. And we often joke now that when he gets his o- Oathkeeper card, I'll bail him out of jail. But he's absolutely convinced that he's right about all these issues. And I, and I know where he's getting a lot of his information, and it's not from reliable sources. So the media's credibility has taken as huge a hit as politicians' credibility have taken in recent years. And it's a real problem. It's a problem that may take a generation to solve. Mm. And it's wrapped up with a much bigger problem of our democracy. Right now, America's democracy is in crisis. I never expected to see this in my lifetime. I'm 69 years old. I've, I've lived through a lot of different periods. I lived through Watergate, I lived through Vietnam. I lived through the Cold War. But there were always constants in our politics. You know foreign policy we argued fiercely and then we agreed on something both parties it was bipartisan the arguing stopped at the water's edge and america projected an image of power and credibility to some extent in the world i know we always have our detractors and we've made a lot of mistakes but in general uh, we spoke with one voice on foreign policy now biden has gone out and helped bring nato back together after the former president talked about leaving it and it not being important anymore. And he's built uh, an incredible 50-nation coalition that goes beyond NATO right now to uh, support Ukraine in its quest for democracy. And we can argue about how, you know, mistakes America made and the West made that might have led us down this path uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. Those are all fair arguments. But right now, we have a country in uh, Europe that is under attack in a way that no country there has been Since really World War II, I was in Yugoslavia and there was terrible fighting there, but there has been nothing like the human rights violations, the war crimes and the systematic destruction. Again, this underscores, especially with Putin in power, making it illegal to call it a war, as you just mentioned, Evan Gershkovich, and threatening others with 16 years in prison if you say the wrong thing or characterize it wrongly. It's a time when more than ever we need foreign correspondents out there on the ground in Ukraine, uh, side by side with Ukrainian correspondents, telling the story, telling the truth. And only through that, again, I'll say this repeatedly again and again, only by telling the truth, that's the, that's the only disinfectant for the, the virus of lives that we face these days, that is not just you know, perpetuated by politicians or even governments now, but it's amplified in these ecosystems of media that uh, make people live in different universes because we no longer agree on the same set of facts.
0: But isn't isn't there also the challenge with the truth where, especially with us as foreign correspondents, of course you're not native to the country you're reporting from, but you have done your homework. You know a lot about the country, or at least you know as much as someone who is not from that country would know. And you're talking to people in authority or to people on the street and they decide to give you their version of what they believe to be the truth doesn't that also pose a challenge for us as foreign correspondents where you may i I don't know because then you're torn between censoring that person or actually going ahead and publishing you know or broadcasting what they're saying which you are not entirely sure if is actually the truth or similar to the truth or a variant of the truth. Yes, and this is
1: and this is again one of the challenges that all reporters face in today's world. Uh, you're from Africa. When I went into Somalia, there were uh, three clans uh, fighting for ascendancy and using food as a weapon against each other. There was the American military. There were four opinions and more that you could find. Absolutely. As a foreign correspondent, I had to find and weave my way through all those to try and tell the stories best I could about the human suffering. And what I saw on the ground without listening to governments or plans telling me, I listened to everybody, I reported what everyone said, but I also tried to make sure my readers understood from my independent, as objective as I could be viewpoint, what was happening. Same thing when I covered the war in Yugoslavia. There were Bosnian Serbs, there were Bosnian Croats, there were Bosnian Muslims. All had uh, a claim to Sarajevo, this magnificent city that was under siege in in a barbaric way. And each of them had a viewpoint and i had to report that viewpoint but i also had to make it damn clear to my readers who was most responsible and in that case it was clear to me the bosnian serbs were i mean the bosnian serbs when i went in with john burns the new york times reporter he and i went in together and the bosnian serb pr guy in pale overlooking the city said well we can either kill you or give you a a press pass and for 15,000 years of human history there's only been war so that is our natural state And we were like, and all in French, which I wasn't great at. Um, And we were like, fine, we'll take the press pass. And he let us in, but in the city, you know, you had to drive in at 100 miles an hour down the streets because they fired anti-aircraft artillery down the streets at you, down the side streets. And people were being shot in their cars. And there were 155 millimeter artillery shells fired by the Bosnian Serbs, raining down on the city 24/7, thundering into buildings all around us, I was a nervous wreck, the skin was peeling from my fingers. But I gave everybody their fair say in my story. Why are the Bosnian Serbs fighting? Why are the Bosnian Muslims and Croats fighting? But then I told the story of the human beings who were suffering. And it was clear to me, being there on the ground, that there was more truth and justice in what the the Muslims and the Croats were fighting for than what the Bosnian Serbs were fighting for, because they were really, promoting a brand of nationalism that had been kept under wraps by Tito all during the Soviet Union years, but as soon as that ended and the top was lifted from this boiling pot, all this destructive, evil nationalism came out, and that's what was really happening. And it would have been not following my obligation as a journalist if I didn't explain that. As you say, you learn the context of America when you came here. You have to figure out what the heck is going on so mm-hmm. i know other journalists who are foreign correspondents here who go to iowa go to the reddest county they can find and interview people there and i think the media in general has to do this if there's a, a left-wing or progressive bias in the mainstream media and i think it's fair to say there isn't some quarters it caused the media to miss a lot of things to miss the rise of trump in 2016 and what it was mm-hmm. going on in the country that absolutely fired up people for him. There's a level of white grievance, in my view, that goes back to the globalization that started in the 80s when industrialization of the Midwest rusted. Jobs went away in the steel and railroad and other industries. Those jobs fled south to the Sunbelt. And a lot of people in, in the heartland of the Midwest were out of jobs and then all over the country in a lot of red states. Old jobs went away with the globalizing economy That's one factor economic and the other is racial. I do believe that as this country becomes more uh, close to majority minority in 2040 or 2045, when the white dominant power structure, which has always been the majority, is no longer. I think we're seeing, and we've seen this rise for 15 years now of this backlash. And I think that is also powering Trump. You can look at Trump right now and some of the words he's using to describe the people who are in the justice system trying to call him to account and bring him to justice. And there's a a racist element of some of the things he's saying now to protest this while he denigrates the government, denigrates the Justice Department. It was fine for him to weaponize it when he tried to overthrow an election. It is not okay in his mind when the long arm of the law comes after him. So you have a challenge and you have to report. What that group of Americans, there's a third of Americans or a quarter of Americans who actually still support Trump. I don't know if that will last, but they do. And they're diehard supporters. And part of the reason they do is that, and they are enabling him to do the things he does. And it's a challenge for American reporters as well as international reporters here to pick through all this and maybe step back and say, what's happening in America now? What are the great transformations in culture and society an economy that are leading us to this point where our democracy is at risk. Uh, we have a, a guy who's been indicted four times now criminally in the last year, and he is a front runner for the Republican nomination for president. Mm-hmm. And and it's, I mean, our, my friends in Europe are, are like, America, are you okay? And yes. Uh, Biden has brought normalcy back to foreign policy. When Trump overturned the climate change agreement, Trump overturned the Iran nuclear accord, Trump questioned the value of NATO. Biden has been trying to rebuild back the consensus on foreign policy that is basically still there. I mean, there's still a strong consensus in favor of helping to arm Ukraine against the totalitarian despot trying to destroy that country to expand his Russian empire. But we have to sort through the facts and report them, it's not good enough to say one side is lying and one's not. You have to say why that's happening and why people are supporting that lie. Trump wouldn't be powerful if he weren't being enabled by a lot of people who have been misinformed and disinformed through conspiracy theories and lying lawyers and a political cult that it's not all their fault. I mean, right down to the relatives in my family who believe what they believe. And a lot of it is just not correct.
0: And whilst we as journalists or foreign international journalists n- need to report the truth, there's also one truth that we have to face, which is the cuts in jobs in newsrooms. And it is also affecting international journalists as well. I'm not 100% sure if I know exactly why these are happening, why all these job cuts are happening. Maybe you could share some perspective on w- on that and what you know about it.
1: Well, sure. I mean, it's the internet. Um, the rise of the internet uh, transformed the news business. I mean, ever since Gutenberg and the creation of mass communication, there's been sort of a, a an aristocracy, if you will, a fourth estate, uh, an accepted class of journalists around the world, especially in democracies, uh, as they came to to be uh, reporting. Or purporting to report independently about what's going on in the world, and you know, back in the 1700s when America was created, if you were a journalist, you were really a spokesman for one political party or another, and there was no objectivity the way we know it today. But those were kind of the accepted, and, and then that evolved into the kind of report reporting on the truth we talk about today, the kind of objectivity we talk about today, uh, whether it's um, you know the Watergate reporting that brought down a president, the independent reporting that allows press on all sides of the ideological spectrum. But that was kind of our accepted uh, fourth estate, our accepted press and press freedoms in this country. And the newspapers were powerful. My Chicago Tribune, when I was working there in the 80s and 90s, was a Fortune 500 company with billions of dollars, uh, enough to buy the LA Times, and ruin it, if you ask my friends from the L.A. Times, but we were sent out around the world. We could afford to have 11 bureaus in foreign countries and to cover the world the way it had been for much of the last century by roving foreign correspondents, you know, coming into areas and trying to report back to America the truth on the ground that they saw, the truth that no government can ever be relied upon to tell you. But then came the Internet. And we went from this mass media that was relatively respected as a source of news. I mean, even Fox News viewers, if they want to know what really happens, they'll read The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. They'll go to a newspaper, no matter how much they denounce it. But the rise of the internet started nipping it away at our advertising. The newspaper's base was advertising was the basis of our business model and classified ads were a big part of that, and subscriptions were a smaller part of that. But as soon as the internet started eating away at the ad base, bit by bit, those profits started going out the window. We had a 24% rate of return for the Chicago Tribune, the Tribune company, uh, and gradually that chipped away until we were losing one. And And, you know, journalists, again, uh, at the time, I remember when they wanted us to do more television interviews and radio interviews. And, you know, the Tribune built a news studio in the center of the print newsroom. And there was all this horror among the old-timer, gray-haired, you know, foreign correspondents. We national correspondents are writing about policy and we foreign correspondents are writing about the important issues around the world. You know, we're not going to dumb it down to television or local cable news, this or that. But there, there we were in the newsroom being told to step up because the Tribune was, was taking advantage of its expanded business assets like its cable news outlet, its radio outlet, and now its online platform. And a lot of newspapers gave it away for free at first because the online model was just so new. So it, there was resistance by the old guard who thought they knew better. We're going to keep doing things the way we already have. There was an obliviousness to the fact that we were arguing about the deck chairs on the Titanic while it was really going, the business model was going south uh, into the North Atlantic that fast. And I wrote about this later when I, when I got my master's degree and went on into higher ed. I wrote about the uh, resistance to change. And we're seeing that same resistance to change today with uh, artificial intelligence and other large language models that are now coming to the fore now. And some people say that if you thought the internet was a disruptive technology to the news business, where do you see AI? And I think there's some truth in that. Mm. But, But technology now changes every nanosecond. What took six or 700 years to go into decline since Gutenberg was over in a few, maybe a decade or two. And then the rise of all these digital news outlets that you know, would earn money by clicks as opposed to how many newspapers they sold and the rise of the importance of video and audio as a means of storytelling, as you know well for the work you do, um, because people want the news now on their phones in all the ways that they want to get it. And you have to adapt as a news organization or Mm -hmm. die.
0: So you did talk about AI, which, of course, is also one of the many challenges we are facing because there's a lot of stress. We know the actors are on strike and the writers are on strike because of AI and the potential problems it poses to their profession. Now, how about us as reporters? What do we face? There's a reporting that Google is developing an AI tool to help news publishers by generating text and headlines, for instance. And that got me wondering, what other roles can AI play in journalism?
1: Neat, that's a great question. And especially you bring up the writers' uh, strike and, and the Hollywood strike. Um, it is going to impact their industry. It's certainly already impacting the journalism industry. And I read about that too that, that Google's developing a project. I think they call it Genesis. And it's intended to help, quote, air quotes, help journalists do their jobs like gathering content to produce news stories, Um, and they're reportedly starting only with smaller publishers uh, with this, but they've also pitched some of the top news organizations like the New York Times, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, uh, News Corp, And and the truth is there are already news organizations like The Times or NPR, Business Insider, known as Insider, the Associated Press who have already informed their staffs that they're looking um, at some possible uses of AI in their newsrooms. And, you know, they're going to use it to help gather facts on deadline when seconds matter. But many of the large language language models of AI are up to date only to a few years ago. So you're not going to have uh, yet anyway, real time uh, information from a lot of them. They are improving their, their databases as times go by and the newer ones are more current. And there's some really good ones, you know, I use, I think it's called Otter Open AI, which is a great site for transcribing interviews for stories. It's fabulous. It saves me all sorts of time. And I've used uh, ChatGPT in my classes at Northwestern as kind of a teaching and a learning aid. Um, and there mm. are lots of cool things it can do. Um, it can it can spit out really smart headlines, for example. If you're creating headlines, you can ask it to write 20 headlines and son your phone your questions and then sift through those and shape it to the one you like but the big thing is you have to fact check it and be careful really careful what you use it for
0: Um, exactly
1: i mean in in my journalism and some and uh, marketing class it's good at summarizing best practices for example rules of the road for good writing it could give you the the 10 top good writing rules but it can't write compellingly the way you and i can as human beings they Mm -hmm. can gather information on a topic but they can't write with energy and punch or empathy and emotion like human writers can, at least not yet anyway. And the downside is they are prone to inaccuracies, they are prone to hallucinations, and they make stuff up. So that use of AI can not only hurt the reputations of generative AI tools, but also the credibility of any news organization that uses it and
0: gets it Mm -hmm. wrong. Does it then mean for (laughs) for us as journalists, we really shouldn't have to worry so much about losing our jobs to ai because like you said i honestly don't see how ai for instance is going to write a story about the migrant situation we are having in new york right now without actually talking to the migrants to get their story that is something i feel like only the human journalists can do but not the ai so should we start celebrating (laughs) or it's probably too early to do that
1: no way, uh, just the opposite. You know, there are things that we can do now that it can't do, but it, it's a fast learner. And, um, you know, we're not at the age of the the famous movie, The Terminator, where the machines got so smart they took over and tried to destroy the humans. But that's not out of the realm of the possibility as these large language learning models get smarter and smarter. They are going to get better at doing things. I think we're safe in terms of writing skills for, for yeah. some to come. But I think we also need to embrace it; otherwise, it will overwhelm journalists and foreign correspondents. We need to embrace what we can and learn what we can. And as you and I have talked about, um, some of the research shows that AI can be creative, right? The um, yeah, and what it does. I mean, in um, research in a big university, the way you create new knowledge, one of the ways is is not the inventor in a garage working by himself, you know, through the night. It's through innovation, is through combining disciplines, it's through seeing currently existing things in new ways, brainstorming in blue sky and, and creating that ability. And AI can actually do that and come up with stuff that humans may not have put together yet. It re- Reconstructs these different things that it might learn about. And so in that sense, it can be creative. But to your question, you know, journalists worrying about losing their jobs, they already are. There are some yeah. organizations like BUILD, in Germany, the German, uh, the largest German tabloid, that recently announced it was laying off a third of its staff and moving their functions to machines. Not good for journalists. And Buzzfeed announcing earlier this year that it's using AI to generate quizzes and content, sort of like um, SEO-driven travel guides. So it's already here. It's already taking our jobs. Journalists have to be on their guard and mindful of how it's going to affect our business because. You know, a lot of the big organizations are already telling their people, we're going to experiment with this, we have to, if it can save us time and money. And, and journalists, of all people, can't be behind the curve. We've got to explore this, we can't be afraid to explore this. And we can use it for things, but we have to be aware of its weaknesses and where we can do better emphasize the value of the human uh, content, the human management, the human editing, and the human writing, which it still can't write like a
0: human so bearing in mind the current limitations of ai which is that it's prone to errors then the the outlet would have to keep an eye on that what's the best way for journalists to work with ai and also for us as foreign correspondents is there a way to enhance our work with ai for instance like say i'm sent over to say south korea for instance on assignment i don't speak a word of korean so is there a way i can you know, work with AI to make my reporting experience in Korea not be so tough, but you know, at least something I can push my way through at the end of the day. I I honestly don't know about that. I think that's a problem
1: that all journalists who are foreign correspondents always face when we're sent into an unfamiliar area where we don't speak the language, or we've never been, or we don't know the culture. There's a lot of criticism of parachute journalism, but if you have an experienced journalist Uh, you want to send that person in to cover a story or a breaking story. What I have found it's useful for for language is my international students use it a lot. My Chinese students use it a lot. And their students working in a second language and writing in a second language, which is about as hard as you can, it's about as hard a task as you can possibly do. Uh, My wife worked in France for years and she would try to write at the AP office. She wrote in English, but sometimes she'd try to write in French and it was hopeless. What AI can do is take that yeah. you know, bad story that you've written in the second language and clean yeah. up the grammar and make it presentable. And if you if you wrote it in a punchy way, it may come out well. I, but I've got a, a couple ideas about this. One of the first stories I saw about AI was a 60 minutes episode in which Scott Pelley was looking at this model uh, about maybe six or eight months ago. And he said, okay, well, how would it solve the Federal Reserve problem of stopping inflation and it gave him a whole list of things that were all good sort of acceptable strategies to do that but then he asked for the, the work in the background and it gave him five or six books for hmm. background that didn't exist the names the authors and the books didn't exist and i also you know i've used uh chat gp in my class i created a, a persona for it uh, i said give me a writing coach for marketers and give me the top 10 best techniques for uh, effective writing and content and influencer marketing. And it named a persona named Winston Wordsmith. And Winston gave me great ideas for how to write marketing different from news. And its top 10 tips were, were spot on for effective marketing content. And I gave it a trick question. I said, Socrates, wrong, created the ancient persuasive rhetoric rules of pathos, ethos, and logos. And that's how you write the most persuasively. But it was really Aristotle, it wasn't Socrates. So it went right ahead and said, yes, Socrates taught us that no wrong. Uh, and I also asked it to create a, a, a an image of Winston Wordsmith that looked like me. And I used Adobe Firefly AI to do that. And it created a picture that was, well, it gave me many, many options. I kept trying to refine the option, which is what you have to do. You have to keep asking and refining questions. But it gave me this bizarre, uh, these bizarre images of a spectrum of people who look like me some were men, some were women, some were, were on the gender spectrum in between. My favorite one was androgynous. Uh, it had a wonderful feminine hairdo and looked really nice, but I also had a mustache and it did sort of look <laughs> a lot like me, um, but it was a little discomforting. So there's lots it can't do. Even the images it creates couldn't write the name Winston Wordsmith because it was focused on image as opposed to text. So I think, again, this gets to your question about South Korea. We need, as journalists, to learn these tools, what works, what doesn't. You always have to ask it multiple questions to refine your answers, your research, or solutions that you're trying to seek. And it will give you good ideas sometimes, but you have to perfect those ideas. when I have my students do this, I make them do a lot of questions, not to be lazy, and just show me their work so that um, I can see what questions they ask, what answers they got, and then how they use that in their writing, so they're not using it to write But for journalists, I'd say the the three most important things we need to do, like with anything else, with AI, we have to check the work of the machines, the grammar, the facts, the accuracy. That's what journalists already do in their work. But if you're doing research or headlines or looking for a good description of some issue or system, it can be helpful as a starting point, but not a finished product. And second, as I just said, you've got to keep asking questions to refine your search. That's how to use it, um, without just sort of asking it a one-off questions and taking mm. answer. Ask it a lot, but I really encourage all journalists to experiment with this, starting now, so that you can stay up with uh, what happens and how it might have some best uses. And again, the third use is what I I use the the Otter AI transcription service for my my stories for the Washington Monthly and for mm. the Chicago Tribune that I still write because it's great. You put your N3P audio into the to the machine mm. in a minutes it gives you a transcript that's a live transcript on the web. you click on the part of the interview you want and it picks up right from there and plays it right from there and if you're doing you know God forbid if you're doing a QA and you have to do the whole thing it starts yeah. it all for you and then you just have to clean it up. Um, but if you're finding that quote you don't have to go through an hour of tape, You can go Mm. right to the place in the transcript where you know it is. You can listen to that three minutes. You can get your quote and you can check your quote. And it's been invaluable for saving me time. So I think those two things, the the transcription and also the translation to help you write better would be, I'd I'd say, are two of the best uses I've found for
0: it. So Bob, to wrap up, we've, we've talked at length about some of the challenges we face because the challenges in our industry They are too numerous to to discuss in one um, podcast episode. Based on the ones we've talked about, the digitization of stories, the job losses in the industry, the AI coming on board and um, what it can and cannot do and how we have to cope with it. You brilliantly gave us three points right now. In summary, what would you say journalists need to do to prepare or I wouldn't say to soften the, yeah, maybe to soften the blow is more of a better word that these challenges pose to us in in our profession, because it is a fact we are losing jobs because the internet has come on stream and the AI is also being trained to do some of the things we're doing. So the numbers, the large numbers in the newsrooms aren't necessary anymore. So what do we really do? Well, you, um, you need know this because you went from one
1: desired field into audio. So you went into a field that's relatively new. I mean, the printing press goes back to Gutenberg multiple centuries. But you picked up on a new technology that was just created in the last century. And it transformed the last century. I mean, print newspapers were it until radio came about in the 20s and 30s and became more used for sports or for news. And then television came and changed the game again. And then the internet came and changed the game again. And each change changes it more rapidly so the bigger picture to me is there's always been disruptive technology it is accelerating now at a rate we've never seen before again whether it's the misinformation disinformation amplified on social media or whether it's the rise of ai that that some say will be multiply times more impactful than the rise of the internet the first thing you do is is you you adapt and that means a couple of things. It means you start with the old school skills that we've all learned and you apply them in the new media world. At Northwestern, we teach our journalists what some call backpack journalism. When they leave with a master's or an undergraduate degree, they don't know just how to write compellingly for newspapers and magazines. They can do data reporting, they can do coding, they can do radio, video, audio, and they can write for online versus writing for of print journalism, but they have to take all that, all those skills out into the world now because that's the world they're in. But the old school skills are still the same. You have to know how to interview a person, have to be empathetic as a reporter, have to understand Mm -hmm. what news is as you hear it and adapt as you hear it. Just a quick story in Sarajevo, I was in a bomb shelter with two little girls the ages of my daughters in the 90s, four, three, four and five. and these. These two little girls were with their grandmother as The shells fell outside. Their father was away doing funeral arrangements for their mother because she had just passed away. She was killed in the fighting. He was out getting a a casket and funeral um, logistics done. And they were with the grandmother. And I was interviewing them. And I knew that they lost their mother and they didn't know that yet. That was heartbreaking. Um, I knew the pain and suffering that they were going to go through. No machine can make that assessment. No machine at this point can cover a war. I mean, Elon Musk gave Starlink to Ukraine and they can communicate over it. So the internet is there, but you know, you need a war correspondent or a seasoned correspondent to go into a difficult area of the world, make judgments about safety and how to stay safe, make judgments about freedom of the press there. How safe is it for me to say something or do something here? You have to think on multiple complex levels And then you have to report and absorb and understand what you're hearing and think as you interview these little girls who want to make you weep, but you can't show what you know. And then you have to go back and write that story. AI can't do that. Maybe someday. But right now you need a human being to go home, you know, punch up yourself and say, you know, now try, try to do justice to this poignant human story that you just saw. So that your readers back home or your viewers or your listeners understand just how brutal, barbaric, and inhumane this war is. And maybe they know better how to think about policy or who they vote for that might have an impact on that policy, or what politician would support that. And and the old the old school skills are ethics and journalism. You know, report the truth. Mm-hmm. The truth won't always set you free, but it, it will set you down the road to countering all the disinformation. You have to report it on a new platform, learn a new platform. If you have to use AI, use it where it can help you save time and enhance your story. But don't let it make you a, mis- a mistake that you then have to correct because you tried to cut some corner. Support the support and learn how to use this new and innovative thing because it's coming. It's here. It's already costing journalists some jobs. Don't yeah. run away from it, but try and, you know, there's people who will use it for ill. We have to use it for good. And people have to learn how to do that so you can counter the other thing. And, and we're going to have to rely on new models of journalism, online journalism, non-for-profit journalism, maybe government-supported journalism like like public television or public radio. But the, the final thing I will say is there is a great uh, British playwright, Tom Staffard, who before he wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead and other great plays, he wrote a play, it was his only journalism play because he started out as a reporter, a foreign correspondent in Africa and it's called Night and Day, and there's a character in it that says at one point at a terribly destructive and sad uh, human moment, information is light. Information in itself about anything is light, and that's what foreign correspondents do. They go in and tell the story that no machine or no government or no invested interest on one side or the other can tell. An independent view of what's going on in a section of humanity in a part of the world where their readers, would not know about unless they were there writing about these people who would otherwise die in darkness or suffer terrible fates under a bad government or autocracy and that matters and i think in this era of digitization and misinformation foreign correspondent work matters more than ever now and it's vital the work you do the work i do the work journalists and foreign correspondents do is absolutely vital especially now more than ever
0: well you said it well so, uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time with us today on the on the podcast.
1: Ne, it's been great to be here. Thank you for really thoughtful questions. Uh, it's really great to see you, and uh, see you the next time in New York. Definitely.
0: And that's it for this episode of the Foreign Press Podcast. You can visit our website, www.foreignpresscorrespondence.org, for more educational resources produced by the AFPC USA. And check out our dedicated press freedom platform. The address is www.pressfreedom.org for updates on global press freedom violations. Across social media, find us by searching for Foreign Press USA. I hope you join us again next time for another episode of the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi Smatabe. See you soon.